Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Ozymandias Project. Trireme Transit, the newest and most reliable state-of-the-art time-traveling transportation service, is now boarding for all new and returning passengers. Now departing, present ponderings. Next stop is Ancient Odyssey. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 11 of the podcast. This week, I spoke with Dr. Jay Reed, a professor of classics and the director of undergraduate studies at Brown University. He is a scholar of ancient Greek and Roman literature and culture, and has worked especially on Hellenistic and Augustan poetry. He has published a critical study of Virgil's Aeneid, exploring the tentative and evolving sense of a Roman nationality in this national epic. His interests lie mainly in the poetic representation of cultural identity. He has also published papers on the myth and cult of Adonis, especially their syncretistic aspects and social uses. We had an earnest discussion about whether general education requirements are still important, why there aren't more adaptations of Virgil's Aeneid, and about the unique structure of the Brown curriculum. I really learned a lot from this discussion, and I hope that you will too. So take care, and I'll speak to you all next time. Okay, I would like to first off start by thanking you for joining me today. Um, Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, I was really happy that you had some time and uh, really, really excited to have you on the podcast. Um, so I want to just jump right in and ask, how did you find your way into classics? Um, it's such a niche subject that I find everyone has a very unique story, whether it's the most fantastical, amazing story is, is usually it differs by person. But um... my story isn't isn't fantastical or amazing, I don't think it. I think it's fairly common. Just when I was a kid, I became interested in ancient Roman history and mythology, as one does. You know, lots of people are interested in that, and just kept taking books out of the library and so on. So I made a plan of taking Latin when I got to high school. It was offered at my high school, and um, and then in college continued with it, and just you know just wasn't finished with it. Yeah, I, yeah. I guess I'm still kind of, I'm not a historian. Um, so I, I mean, I started reading books I took out of the library as a kid on Roman history, especially, but also other classics related things. I'm more of a literary person. So I guess I sort of drifted within ancient Greek and Roman studies a little bit, but I, I still, I still work on mythology in some ways. And did you find it an easy jump or 
because I know a lot of people like myself, we always just loved stories. We loved mythology. I would read them in books. But then uh, when I got to high school, no one told me that it was a an actual discipline that I could go and major in in college. So I just didn't think it was going to be possible. I thought it was just going to be kind of a lifelong hobby. Um, so I didn't learn until I got to university. Oh, hey, that that is a department. That is a thing. Well, I don't remember when I became aware. I mean, I just, just, I guess, as I grew up and became aware of what was ahead of me in the next few years and the next school or college I was going to, I gradually became aware of what the possibilities were for continuing, continuing learning about this stuff in a more formal way. Obviously, when I was 10 years old, I wasn't thinking about that. And in my elementary school, they were not offering courses dedicated to Roman history or mythology or... Uh, Latin language or, or anything. But, um, but as I say, I, did, I, I was aware by, by eighth grade or the end of eighth grade that when I got to high school, I would be able to take Latin. And of course, that had been in, in my sights for a while, just like as kind of the next logical next step. And I was, I, I was also interested in languages to start with. I, I, I just have always liked, liked studying languages. So I, I definitely knew that I wanted to sign up for Latin in ninth grade and just kind of took it from there. At some point in high school, I guess I became aware of that there were majors in college and one could major in ancient Greek and Roman studies. And, and so I, I made that plan. And then at some point I became aware that you could do this in graduate school as well, or somehow people got higher training in this. So that was kind of on my horizon at some point, maybe even in high school. Yeah. And how did you make the decision if you because uh, so many people I know love languages as well. Um, and they they often tell me, you know, oh, OK, well, I I liked one of the ancient languages, but I didn't want to just stop there. So I picked up another and then maybe another along the way. So how did you make the decision to do classics rather than linguistics, which is something I like to ask a lot of language nerds like myself? Linguistics, um, as, as a discipline, as a, as a major, let's say, as a formal course of study, didn't appeal to me. And I didn't take very much of that in college. I did take one historical linguistics course in uh, Indo-European linguistics. Uh, um, it was kind of, a, kind of an introductory survey, although it was fairly heavy duty. Uh, I guess because uh, I was, uh, the courses that I was taking were more uh, on the literature or other uh, other manifestations of the culture, some history, some philosophy, and and so on. They were taught obviously in in English translation, but uh, no, I wasn't I wasn't interested in linguistics per se. Yeah, I think it's interesting because th that seems to be a really popular thing, which is no, because linguistics gets into the nitty gritty of of more than I really am willing to to get into i just kind of want to stick with you know i i have a background in latin and i like latin or somebody would say the same about greek and say well i'm gonna stick with these and i'm, I'm okay but for me it probably wasn't a question of um eschewing linguistics as a course of study but rather just filling up my my uh my schedule with courses on um latin latin and greek authors plutarch what else did I take? Homer, um, Virgil, 
lucan, et cetera, et cetera, or, or other things. And so is, is your interest in poetry kind of an offshoot of just that love of languages or like, how did you choose your specialization? I don't know. The muse just pushed me in that direction, I guess. I, I mean, again, my, my love of languages is connected to the stuff that I wanted to read in the languages as much as it's just a love of languages per se. Yeah. And sometimes that's, I, I find more times than not, that's the general answer, which is, I don't know how I got into where I got into. I just always had an interest. So yeah, it, I, I've learned, I've learned after asking enough scholars that it's just an incredibly difficult question. One that no one really likes being asked because it's just some sort of innate love that you, you just kind of delve into and then, and then choose and go with that. Um, it was, Oh, I wish I remember who, who it was, but somebody just said, uh, asking a scholar, you know, why did you choose your area of interest or how did, why did you want to go into what you want to go into? It's akin to asking, do you like breathing? Yes, of course I like breathing. I just do. I breathe. I don't, I didn't choose to breathe. I just do it. Um, it's, it's so natural. So, um, so I suppose it's, uh, it's one of those kind of unanswerable ones. <laughs> well, something I'm not done with yet. Let's put it that way. And yeah, we're, that, we're continually learning. That's my interest. Yeah, we're continually learning. Uh, it's one of those great professions where uh, you never get to really stop being a student. I mean, of course, when you're a professor and when you start teaching, you you are teaching other people, but um, it is, it is that wonderful um, place where you can just sort of you can teach and you can do other things and you can write, but you also, you get to spend your life reading and um, accruing more knowledge because it always seems like there's not enough time to, to study. And I, I often find that um, when reflecting on, on being in college and being in classics, I always think, well, there was that one class that was offered. Why didn't I take that? I, I wish you I had more time. time. You only have a certain number of hours in the day and slots on your schedule. I, you know, when I was in college, it was either four or five classes and some, like I, I, I'm teaching at Brown and it's like, they take three or four. So, you know, you can't do everything. Yeah. Which is so unfortunate. I, which is why sometimes I'm like, I should just go to grad school so I can take all, all the classes that I never got to take. But, um, obviously it's not quite that easy, but I, I suppose it's quite different now than even 10 years ago but i i find that as ancient uh disciplines go we put up we like to put up artificial barriers to entry um and we make it unnecessarily hard uh to discover or get into or find reasons to convince people to go into uh any of the ancient disciplines um is that something you're seeing currently as, as a professor? Do you see people kind of say, oh, I didn't know about this, so now it's too late, or how is this going to benefit me because now it's just kind of moot? I'm not going to, you know, this isn't going to help me in any way, shape, or form. If I encountered, uh, if I encountered that, those, um, those hesitations, I would assure the student that it's not too late because 
uh, our under uh, the undergraduate program at Brown, as in many places, is set up so that if you discover that you're interested in the concentration a couple of years in even, there are ways for you to pursue it. The, the requirements are not so burdensome that you can't squeeze it in usually, um, even if they, even if they um, have just discovered Latin or Greek and they wanna take Latin or Greek, they can take an intensive course that's just one semester. Obviously they're gonna to have to make a time commitment to do an intensive course and squeeze a whole year into one semester. And then they're going to have to kind of figure things out so that they get enough advanced courses to fulfill the requirements. But there are, um, and, th and there are also a number of different tracks in, in, the, in, the, the, in our classics department. Our concentration has a Latin track and an ancient Greek track and an ancient Greek and Latin track for those who have, have a commitment to, you know, can make a time commitment to both. On the other hand, and I was just like half an hour ago or an hour ago talking to a student who's, who's a sophomore and declaring his major, he wants to do the Greek and Latin track and he was laying out a kind of a, kind of a roadmap and I, that I think will work. I, I told him that if this turns out to be, to, that he bit off more than he can chew, he can kind of scale it back to just ancient Greek or just Latin. What that would mean is fewer language courses. He would though have to add some courses in translation or some other courses in class at the classes department or archeology span or some related, related field. Um, we also offer Sanskrit and uh, modern Greek in the department. So there are different, different tracks that you can do that, um, that, might, that might fit somebody's schedule who is coming to it late. So if those are the things that a student is hesitating about, I would reassure them that in most cases, now they, they can still do it. You have, you have to kind of squeeze things in maybe, but I don't think that's a problem. Yeah, so when I was, I think, I wasn't a rising sophomore. I think I was already well into my sophomore year. Um, no. So I graduated in 2018. Oh, okay. So you're already two years. So out. I'm like, unfortunately wait, out of doing now. You're running a podcast, but are you are you doing other things in classics? Uh, no. So after the pandemic, I moved back to Chicago to be near my parents and uh, to to save a little, uh, which ended up being a really great decision. So. I'm trying to save up to go back to grad school, hopefully next year uh, in Greece, but I did not meet the language requirements to get into a grad program in classics, just a quirk of the schedule. Oh, okay. And, this is what you were about um, to say. So basically it's, I ended up without the languages, but I ended up studying abroad like three or four times to Greece and the UK and some other places. So I suppose you could say, I just, I wanted to travel more and experience the world than learn the languages and put the time in. So I, I don't regret that decision, but sometimes I definitely think I'd, I'd like to go back. And I don't know if it necessarily would be in classics at this point, but I always knew that I wanted to use my background and show people that it's 100% applicable to get a background in something like the ancient studies and then be able to apply it to a different career path, which is to say, I don't want to discourage people from majoring in these things to, to then have them say, okay, well now I'm going to be poor for the rest of my life. I'm not going to have money because I wasted my time. And so I, I decided I'm going to combine my knowledge and, and background in ancient Greece and 
do more contemporary stuff. So hopefully I'm, I'm hoping to uh, study modern Greek politics and history economics. Uh, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's wrapped into a program. It's kind of hard to explain, have, but. Have you um, read my colleague Johanna Henning's book? I have not. It is on my reading list though, because yeah. I have a whole reading list of things that I'm like, I need to get through while I'm locked up during the pandemic. Highly uh, readable. Oh, good. I'm, I'm so glad. I, I'm always looking for reading suggestions. I, 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 at this point, I should probably stop taking suggestions only because the list is now going on like 50 books that I'm never going to read through in the, the amount of time that I have with work and well, other things. With, with any luck, the pandemic will end before you read. We'll, we'll get, we'll gradually get over it. But then again, you can, I mean, I was reading books before there was a pandemic, so. And it's so funny. It's so weird, though, because I feel like, especially my last years in school, because so much of my my time was spent reading to to write papers and and all that, I I stopped really reading for pleasure a lot, just because so much of my reading was for my research, for school, for just this is going to help me advance in my career eventually. This will get me toward grad school. So. Everything I, I, I read suddenly seems quite academic in nature. So I'm just now during the pandemic learning how to sort of read for pleasure again, even if it's still uh, on an important topic that's kind of related to the field or some somehow related to research. But um, I'm learning how to do that again. It's been a very um, interesting experience to, to sort of have to relearn. Wait, I can do this for fun. It's, it's not just to, to absorb the information. But... It's in, I mean, I, I suppose that's a really long and roundabout uh, explanation for uh, when I was about to graduate and then somebody had asked me about grad school. I just said, um, no, I, I can't because it's, uh, I don't have the requirements. It's, it's way too exclusive almost. I mean, I, 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 I don't like using that word, but that's kind of what it was. I mean, and that that even that sentiment rolled back to when I was a, a sophomore. I was actually considering transferring to Brown um, from the University of Missouri, where I did my undergrad, um, because I said, I don't know if Mizzou has what I'm looking for. It, it kind of is, but I'm not sure if all the things I want to study are accessible to me at this institution. So um, that kind of gets back to that problem of accessibility, which is just, you know, is it going to accommodate for what I need? Do I feel like it's going to give me both what I want, but also keep an eye toward the future? So I I saw that Brown had a, a way to sort of create your own path, create your own major. And I said, oh, that that program sounds like it would be good for me because I, I can pile on all the ancient stuff and then maybe mix in some stuff that will help me get a job. Uh, things happened and I didn't end up transferring. Um, so that was just sort of that, that I, I left that idea behind. Um, but as someone who, who works at Brownlow, do you see students coming into the program or transferring to the program and taking advantage of this way to say, okay, well, I'm going to make myself a very accessible program where I can mix in my love of all these ancient things, but also maybe keep an eye and, and uh, study some more contemporary things that would help them become something that they deem worthy of making money right away after, after school. Well, 
we have, first of all, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say, I, I don't think there's a whole lot of concern among our students about making money once it, well, I mean, I, no more than usual. Everybody's concerned about making money once they graduate. But I don't think that a classics concentrator here feels like that, that it's that great a concern. I mean, people graduate from Brown and they do, they do pretty much whatever they want because they've already been preparing themselves for a job in that, whatever it is, I, you know, I hate to generalize, but this is something you have to generalize about because everybody follows their own path. Um, one, one other thing, one related thing is that many, many of our concentrators are concentrating in other things too one other concentration or sometimes even two if they're very ambitious and they put a lot of time into it. Um, maybe, maybe most of them, you know, I should, I should well, I'm not gonna go into my little folder and, and count them now to see if, there's, if there, we have more one concentration people, but I think, it's, I think a majority of them are concentrating in something else at the same time. And some of that is, uh, some of them are uh, dual concentrating in another thing that they do intend to get a job in. So for example, um, students are, a lot of students are pre-med. So they're also concentrating in biology or neuroscience or something like that, some kind of a health field. Some of them are doing another more literary kind of thing, uh, comp lit, for example. Uh, some of the, I, I know some are doing music. So, you know, they, they, whatever, they might be planning a job in this other thing that they're, concentrating in rather than going on and doing a job in classics, becoming a Latin teacher or going on to grad school in Latin. And some of, the, some of them do, a few of them do go on and uh, become high school Latin teachers. Go, um, I'm writing recomm a recommendation for a student right now who is applying to MAT programs, master's in teaching programs. And there's uh, and a, a student who did that last year. I think there's probably always one or two students who do that. And then some who go on to grad school and classics, most, most don't. They might go into some completely different field or they might go into a field that's related to the other thing they're concentrating in. So I, it's just very common for students, uh, students in our program to, um, to do a dual concentration or even, a, even, as I say, even three, although that's, that's kind of rare. I wouldn't recommend it, but there are some who do it. If they come in with enough preparation, sure. Yeah, I think that's that's really great. Um, I, I wish more places kind of allowed for that because I feel like definitely at least where Mizzou's oh. concerned, they didn't, uh, it was kind of like if you were going to get the classics major, then you would be expected to, other than the gen eds, you would just take all the, the elective courses. Brown prides itself on and brands itself with the open curriculum, right? This is something that's been the case for 50 plus years. Brown formulated this open curriculum. And what it means is that there are very, very few requirements and no area requirements outside of the concentration. So I was, a, I was an undergrad at Yale and we had four, um, four what did they call them? we had distributional requirements in four different fields, right? So it was arts and literature, language and literature and arts and history and social sciences and math and science, right? So we had to take two courses in each of those four fields by the time we finished sophomore year and then one in each 
field, obviously at least one, you could take more and you had to depending on your major, um, but then one more in your next two years. Brown does not have those things. And for some reason I noticed Brown, Brown explains this as a way for people to just spread out and explore and do lots of different things. But obviously in practice, what it more distinctively permits is for students to focus on just the thing they're concentrating on. They don't have to, they don't have to be distracted and take a course on art history if they're, for example, if they're majoring in physics, okay? Or something like that, right? Or vice versa. You don't have to take a course in physics if you're majoring in art history, et cetera, et cetera. So it is somewhat easier at Brown to, um, to pile on different concentrations, to focus on two different things, focus on the requirements for those two fields, let's say, let's say classics and biology, let's say the Latin track of classics and bio, something in biology, because you don't have to go and take all these other required courses. You do have to make sure that you've got a certain number of writing requirements of, of um, writing intensive courses along the line. There are a few um, requirements of that type, but, um, on the, and there's a diversity requirement. They have to take a, a course that satisfies that somewhere along the line. But those aren't, those, those aren't tied to a specific subject or field, right? Those are tied, th those, are, those are things you can satisfy by taking courses in just any, pretty much any field or any program in the college. Do you think that other universities would benefit from adopting the Brown model? Because I definitely think that my academic experience and that of a lot of my friends would have gone very differently had that been a, uh, the case, because I know personally, I'm just trash at math and science. I mean, I have a learning disability in math, so I'm never going to do better than like a C minus or a D in math, uh, which is going to kill my GPA. So then trying to then having that sort of on my record is really going to hinder me if I'm trying to apply to grad schools because they look at the overall GPA and they're like, well, why is it so low? And I say, well, if you look at just the classes in classics, I've, I'm sitting here with like a 3.8 GPA alone. But then when you add in all the, the gen eds that I had to do and the financial planning courses that I was forced to take that I just absolutely couldn't stand, um, the, the, the whole GPA picture is just kind of sad and not where I would want it to be. So. Well, it sounded like, it sounds like you would, you would have benefited from, um, from an open curriculum of the Brown type or something similar. I, you know, looking back at my own experience in college, I, I'm also not so much a math and science person. I didn't, I didn't um, resent having to take math and science courses or history courses or social sciences, which were the other distributional groups. But um, on the one hand, well, I mean, I, I remember beginning of freshman year, yeah, I took an astronomy class and I got a C. So that brought my GPA down. I don't remember what my, I don't, I don't think we paid attention to GPAs, but it brought, you know, it brought the, my average down. And I didn't get a C after that, fortunately. That was like sort of adjusting to college maybe, but it was also the fact that there's, there's a lot of information, a lot of physics, and I hadn't been great at that even in, in, um, in high school. On the other hand, there were courses that I used to fulfill those distributional requirements that, that were closer to other things that I was studying. So for example, I fulfilled one of the, the math and science requirements 
with a course in ancient astronomy. And that was really, it, it didn't skimp on the math. We did a lot of sexagesimal addition and subtraction and I don't know, division and stuff because we were reading these cuneiform tablets and the assignments were, you know, go home here, get some graph paper and try to figure out where Mulbabar, the, 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 the uh, ancient Mesopotamia is an Akkadian name for Jupiter was predicted to be at a certain point or something. This is going back like 30 or 40 years. So I don't remember what exactly the assignment was, but it was, you know, even though there was a lot of math and science in it, it was pretty straightforward and it was connected to something that I could then connect to stuff I was doing elsewhere. Uh, at the same time, what was I taking that semester? I was taking a, I was, I was, that was when I was taking a Plutarch course. So no, there's not a lot of meshing going on between Babylonian, you know, and we, we did like towards the end of the semester, there was some conics, Euclidean conics and, and stuff. I don't remember this very clearly at all, but it didn't mesh that well with Plutarch's life of Alcibiades. And yet it's all the ancient world, that ancient um, Mediterranean and West Asian network of cultures. So, so it wasn't that it wasn't it wasn't a, quite as stark a difference. You know, it was, a, it was a historical study in some ways. It wasn't as stark a difference from what I was doing in classics as was an astronomy course, which was really just about how the stars worked and uh, what we knew about stars and galaxies and stuff like that. This is more like what what were the ancient Mesopotamians saying about stars and galaxies, or at least these particular stars, and how were they studying these things? And what is it, you know, this is a very cultural thing. They're using a sextagesimal um, uh, system, not our decimal system, right? Everything is going by 60s. Well, you know, this sort of, you had to think, think cross-culturally, which is something that I was doing anyway. And I think that sounds great. I mean, I would have appreciated that at least. Um, I, I would, I never, I usually try to stay away because I, I, I don't think of myself as like a, a resentful person of having to take things that quote unquote colleges say will make me a well-rounded person. I, I, I don't try, I, I don't resent that at all, but um, I think it's just a, an overall frustration with the way that our academic system for most standard universities, colleges kind of set it up, which is, I'm sorry, we're, you're going to have to take XYZ classes that probably don't have anything to do with what you want to major in. You're just going to have to take it. And there's no attempt to really connect it to the stuff that I really like. Um, I had to take a atmospheric sciences course, like on meteorology. Atmospheric. And I just remember thinking, I don't, I mean, I'm not about to be a weather lady. Um, I don't. But you're, gonna, you're going to experience the weather. You can connect this with your everyday experience. You want to know whether to bring an umbrella if you go outside and why, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I had to make concessions to myself like, okay, well, this may not connect to the ancient stuff, but it connects to my normal life. So, you know, if I want to look at the weather in the morning on the news and then sort of try to predict things or just go outside and look at the clouds and say, I think it's going to rain today. So, so I, I made these like concessions and promises with myself, but um, it, at the end of the day, I, I really wish that I could have taken classes that 
related better to the ancient stuff, but it didn't work out that way. So I, I was forced to sort of take classes that I just did not enjoy in any way, shape or form. Um, but I got through it and um, it, 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 it was what it was. But yeah, I, I, I really have been an admirer of the Brown model. Um, I had a, a really good friend that uh, I met during my college years who transferred to Brown as a sophomore and she said she she loved it and it was a great experience because she was able to focus really on exactly what interested her and it, it strikes me it seems like it's kind of like the European model where in Europe if you like a subject and you're good at that subject they actively encourage their students okay follow that do that. Um, don't don't waste your time with with gen, gen ed requirements. You know, if, if you hate physics and you're never going to take it because you want to be an art historian, don't bother taking the class. Um, and they don't. So I think in Europe, it's um, it has traditionally been uncommon for students to to take courses in, at the college level, at the university level. The, the post-secondary level outside a fairly narrow course of studies. I think they traditionally they've been channeled right right outside of right out of high school into um, into something. Yeah, and I think that has to do just with the way that they also structure their high school. It, it, it always shocks me when I talk to some European friends of mine, and they're like, "Oh, going to university, much less grad school, is not a given. You're just." Like, yes, they value their education, but I don't know. It, it just, it strikes me as they, they it, it's a whole different system, a whole different way of, of setting things up, especially the, the way they des- describe their sort of high school years, which is they use those years to really like pinpoint where your exact skills are. Like, um, so by the time you go to university, it's not so much pick any major, just experiment around. Uh, when I explained to my, my friends um, that in, in, uh, in the American school system, we have a lot of, you know, you can be an undeclared major until junior year because you can take the time to find what you like. Uh, and they're always shocked because they're like, what's this undeclared stuff? No, you go in and you declare as something the moment you get in. Well, you, you, yeah, you say, I mean, you, you, enter, you enter university knowing what you're going to study, knowing your course of study, that you know, the equivalent to a major you know, a, a student in England will go to university to read whatever, and that's you know, that's the equivalent of their major concentration. Yeah, and so I I want to take a moment to just bring the conversation back a, a little bit um, because I know that uh, y- you've worked on uh, I think pretty extensively uh, Virgil's Aeneid. Am I correct? Yes. So and taught it very often. Well, not very often, but, you know, a bunch of times. Yeah. So I'm just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about, you know, what is it particularly about the Aeneid that you love to research and love to teach? Um, Because I I read it a couple of times for a couple of different classes during undergrad. um, And I got something quite different each time it was taught just in the context of the class. Um, teach, but I would. Did, um, did you, were you studying different parts of the poem? Did you did you go over the same books, or was it different books of the poem each time? Um, I would say two classes. We read the whole thing because one was a, was a Greek and Roman well, epic you, course. You the whole thing in translation. Yes, and then 
another class it was just sort of certain books certain segments because there was like a uh what was it called it was a course on like the the archetype of, of ancient heroes it was like a hero's journey class um where we kind of looked at certain aspects of of like Aeneas's most heroic moments um and then there was one it was a age of Augustus course I think where we looked sort of at and then we analyzed a whole different section of that talking about you know where where do we see this new proto-Roman hero being established versus where do we still see elements of that ancient Greek tradition hero um yeah there were a few different courses where we definitely picked out different things Right. So, so each time there's a different context for your reading and the teacher and your fellow students are bringing out different connections in the poem. Well, I mean, I, I should just say that it's a epic poem. It's a 12 book poem that fills up what like, I just happened to, here's, here's the Aeneid in Fred All's translation, which I was using last semester. Okay. There are a lot of different translations. I don't know if you use this one, but I, it's a big poem, right? Here's Here's my desk. Oh, this is the one I use in college. You can see that it's a little the worse for wear, right? But I've got it in my desk. This isn't just the Aeneid though. This is the OCT Virgil. Um, it's, a hefty, it's a hefty poem with a lot going on, right? And it's, it's written in the Augustan period by a poet, Virgil, who is um, uh, very sensitive to the Greek and Roman culture that has come before him and other cultures that have come before, before the Augustan period and, um, and very sensitive to how all of those can serve as models or not for his image of his own time, which is being reflected quite explicitly by prophecies and flashes forward and so on throughout, throughout the poem. And also implicitly just because the, his story um, in, the, the story that he's telling in some indirect way models contemporary Romanness, contem the contemporary Roman um, establishment as it's it, as it's gelling, as it's in the process of gelling, because uh, it's it's uh, Augustus is sort of it's setting up a, a a new Roman government. So there's just a lot going on there, a lot flowing into the poem, a lot of influences, a lot of uh, different receptions of those influences. So there's always something new to look at. It can satisfy a lot of different, you know, I can, I can look at it as just like language, Latin. Oh, what's he doing? This interesting use of this word, lots of poetic tropes going on, different metaphors and, and so on. How do they fit together? Is there, a, is, is there some overall metaphoric here? There's some system of, of metaphors that, that is pushing us to see things in a, in a certain way. You can look at it in terms of characters. What are these characters doing? Representations of people. How, how are they, um, how do they compare and contrast to each other? How is he, how, how does this Virgil um, set the characters up against each other? You can look at it for like just historical and cultural data, obviously very carefully. Again, you can't say like, you can't just mine it for snapshots of something, but representations of the culture filtered through something, a certain lens on, on, uh, on what, uh, what the Romans had available to them. Politically, it represents certain, certain things in a very complex way. Yeah, uh, I remember, 
there was a certain class and I'm, I'm so sad. I don't remember which one it was, but we were looking at particular with a particular focus on uh, sort of defining the differences between like the, the, the old Greek heroes of Homeric tradition and then the new way that Augustus wanted the ideal Roman hero uh, to differ. Um, and so we saw sort of the, the change in how he goes, how Aeneas goes from being very sort of standard Greek hero to, to how he evolves and change during his odyssey. And I always found that journey so interesting. Well, how do we know what Augustus wanted in a hero? We can be pretty sure what Virgil wanted in a hero unless he went very much astray because we've got 12 books of several heroes, you know, lots of different characters, especially Aeneas. But um, the relationship to what Augustus wanted is pretty indirect. Maybe we can assume, and maybe some people do assume that whatever came out of the poem is what Augustus wanted because Virgil died and he had it. He had the poem copied and, and published. But then again, he wasn't dictating the poem. Oh, right, right. I, I think the, the professor I had at the time uh, very much just sort of implied that because Virgil and Augustus were, were very um, friendly, I think is the way she put it. Uh, she just her, said, you know, I, yeah, she, she, it was so funny. She's, she was, it was just, it was, it stuck out to me because it was so funny because she was like, oh, they were friendly and Virgil wanted to please his buddy Augustus. So he wrote what he thought, he wrote what he thought would please him. That sounds, that sounds, sounds like you're taking a risk with that hypothesis. Uh, what we, we don't, we don't have very many biographical facts on, on Virgil. One thing we do know is that he lived in Naples most of the time. I don't think Augustus was, maybe Augustus came down and visited every weekend. I don't think so. I am. Yeah, I, I don't, I, I'm not doing it justice because I don't remember much about the class because I think I took this either sophomore or junior year now, which is now about four, four or five years ago. But um, I just, I just remember that was kind of the, the hypothesis the hypothesis that my professor was working off of. Um, Virgil, Virgil has adulatory things to say about Augustus, particularly in, in the Georgics. When he makes some kind of encomiastic laudatory statements about Augustus in the Eclogues or the Aeneid, of course, it's in the mouth of a character, right? Even in Eclogue 4, which is in the first person, it's a monologue. This is clearly not Virgil himself in his own persona. This is, uh, this is some sort of rustic persona that he's taking on. And sometimes it's, there's a named character who's speaking. And uh, in the Aeneid, of course, it is. This is, a, this is a third person poem. And when Augustus comes up, often in very heavily encomiastic terms, like, you know, he's going to bring back the golden age. It's somebody, it's a character speaking. It's Anchises or it's, um, or not a character speaking. Maybe, you know, in, the, on, in book eight on the shield of Aeneas, there's, there's a, a picture of Augustus triumphing over Antony and Cleopatra at the Battle of Actium. And then at his, at his actual uh, ceremonial triumph, receiving the conquered nations and so on. This is, this is a representation of a work of art. So it's always, it's always mediated by something. 
Oh yeah. I mean that, yes, that, that would make a lot of sense. And um, what would you say to someone, because there are a lot of people that I talk to who say, what's so great about the Aeneid? It's essentially the Iliad and Odyssey crammed into one book, a lot shorter, but it's essentially the same thing. So why should I read that? What would you say to someone? I would say, to that, that? I would say to that person, you've obviously never read the Aeneid because it has a lot of elements in common with the Iliad and the Odyssey. And even those, those elements are even brought out by close imitations, close, close parallels and um, repetitions of events, you know, action and wording and so on. But that, that's not the whole poem. There's a lot more going on in the poem. There's, a, yeah, there's Rome, for one thing. Thematically, maybe if you reduced it just to um, travels and battle scenes or something, then it, it seems like that. But there's more in the poem than travels and battle scenes. It's a foundational epic, which the Iliad and the Odyssey are only, um, I don't know, only very indirectly. This is, this is, a, this is a foundational imperial epic. And it and has to do with Rome's place among nations in a way that um, maybe the Iliad gets to in hindsight because it's Greeks versus Trojans and later periods can sort of calc the Trojans onto Asians in general, Anatolians, West Asian peoples, uh, barbaroi in the Greek sense, non-Greeks, but sort of localized to West Asia. Um, it's harder to do that with, with the Odyssey, whose non-Greek others are sort of more uh, fanciful people. It's not, not as easy to, uh, to calc onto actual human beings. But I mean, the, the Aeneid is doing this in a very, you know, a very overt way, right? Mm -hmm. It's a political poem. Oh, Oh, yes. Yes. 100% it is. And uh, I, I will admit that um, through my college years, I was definitely a, a very strong Hellenist. Very strong. I, I didn't really, I think I ended up taking like one or two classes on Rome just because it wasn't what I was particularly interested on. But um, I, I remember thinking before, it was right after the first time that I read the Aeneid, my, my first reaction was, what? No, this is this is the Iliad and the Odyssey in reverse order, but trying to show the difference and creating the first proto-Roman hero. And then that's what, that's what Servius says somewhere, right? Wait a minute. Actually, because of the because of the pandemic, I brought so many books from my office. I have everything right right here. What is what is Servius? <laughs> but Servius's commentary, so this is circa 400, right? This is a Roman scholar who's writing about um, the Aeneid. Yeah, who says that, you know, the, basically the, the, the first half of the poem is modeled after the Odyssey and the second half after the Iliad. So he's seeing that he's doing a certain amount of literary history, um, what we might call intertextual studies, or at least finding those finding those models, but those are, those are just very broad-based models, right? You can, mm. you can dig in there, as I say, and find specific imitations of actions and characters and words and everything, but they're recontextualized. So they, they're, they're always doing something else and something new. The, the whole, you know, the, the, it's, a, it's often been, been noted that the, the whole ancient poetics of imitation in Greek and 
Greece and Rome anyway, has to do with imitation as the engine of originality. So we, you know, in, in, in our culture, especially the past 200 years, like imitation, no, that's, that's not, you should be original. You should do your own thing. This, does, this is not an issue that comes up so much in, in ancient Rome or ancient Greece. It's, it's more like you imitate people and do your own thing. There are two, two sides of the same coin. In, in Greek, mimesis and zdelosis, right? Which is kind of means um, you know, imitating and competing with, right? In Latin, imitatio imulatio, imitate, imitation and competition or vying with or outdoing or something like that. Out, outdoing could come into it, like you're doing something better, but you're at least doing something different. There is, there is that interplay, they're always conscious of that interplay of repetition and substitution. Yeah, I, I, I learned when I, when I learned more in other courses and I, and I reread the poem and especially when focusing on certain passages, I, I did realize it is more than just what we stereotype it to be, which is just some crude imitation, the, the, it was it was a friend of mine who said it's the the world's very first massive large scale plagiarism and i said well that's not entirely true i mean it it takes a lot of very similar strategies to, to how it's crafted uh, especially with aeneas's voyage to the underworld and he has to talk to three ghosts and it's the same thing that odysseus had to do and so i say yeah on the surface okay three and three and the same kind of thing had to happen but um yeah, but it is it is it's very much its own work. I later came to realize, and it's it, it's shorter. It's it's too. It, it okay, takes yeah, two large books. epics and it and it crams them into one it's of twelve, 12 books. It's only twelve books, but it's um, those books are longer than the ones in in Homer. You, you, sure. you know the you know the opposite of doing that. Do you know Nonus's epic, the Dionysiaca, from around four four hundred four fifty? This is mm -hmm. this is a forty-eight book epic on the adventures of Dionysus, especially his um, his battles against India, and you know lots of mythological characters in there too. But that's forty-eight books. However, those tend to be shorter than the ones in Homer. So yeah, there are more. It takes up three lobe volumes, but uh, you don't you don't have to read quite as much as you expect. And and. So be, because the Aeneid, upon further inspection, is, is brilliantly its, its own thing, which is quite distinct from Homer's works, why do you think we don't see more people sort of in popular culture trying to adapt the Aeneid? I mean, we have the Brad Pitt Troy and the new uh, Netflix miniseries about that's sort of loosely based on the Iliad. You know, why do you think we don't do, we, we don't attempt the Aeneid more? Is it because people just say, oh, it's too similar? This is something that people, people have discussed a lot. I mean, part of it is that it is, uh, it's, it's got, it's, it's got a le less universal content, not in all ways, but as a whole, it's really focused on ancient Rome. Would you think, you know, that's, that in itself is not so much a problem. There are plenty of movies and TV shows that take place in ancient Rome and they make a lot of money because people, Think Rome, emperors, gladiators, awful things going on, um, luxury and everything. There's a certain stereotype about Rome that people like to put into 
into into movies. But that's those those qualities are not the qualities that the Aeneid is um, is attaching to Rome so much. It's more it's it's a more complicated thing. It's more about um, constructing a Roman identity, a Roman a Roman position, or a, let's say a position within the world, a subject position that uh, within the world and within history that can be identified in one way or another with the Roman, right? And and it doesn't get so much into that. There are no gladiators, right? There are no there are no emperors, really. There there aren't these things that you would find in the movie Gladiator or Spartacus or you know whatever people are, are looking for. Now it's true that you could make a movie out of this, and you could you could have a big romance with Dido, and you could have big battle scenes of the kind that you know everybody likes to see. I, I'm I'm a little over this. You know Peter Jackson, if you get Peter Jackson to direct this, and and everybody would go see everybody getting their their head chopped in two and their you know guts spilling all over the place, but I don't know, for some for one reason or another people people haven't. I want I want to say maybe it's because maybe it's because of this. This is something that again people keep bringing up. Aeneas is not this compelling character. He's not this heroic character the way an Achilles is, or especially an Odysseus is really a focus for us. People can identify. I don't know, is that true? Does everybody identify with with um, with Odysseus? I think I think people tend to more than with Aeneas. In fact, I, I always find, and this is just my experience, reading the Odyssey, I, the, the, Iliad, the, the Aeneid and the Odyssey both have those several book long passages where the main character is narrating his experiences, right? Odysseus has such a strong voice and perspective that he creates that you tend to remember the rest of the poem as if he were telling that story, which he's not, he's, not, he's only in those few books. The Aeneid, in the Aeneas has such a diluted voice, I'll put it that way, such a less distinctive voice and perspective that he creates that you tend to remember books two and three as if they were narrated in, in the third person, or at least that's how a lot of people treat them. They just go back and, and say, oh, and this is what happened, the Troy fell and they went from here to here without framing it as Aeneas says, this is what happened with Troy fell. Aeneas says that this is why they went from here to here and so on. He's got this, this much more diluted um, viewpoint. However, I'm not sure that I wanna go ahead and say that that's why the poem does not attract, um, what do you wanna say, recreations in other media, in modern media, film versions, TV versions, graphic novels, novelizations, the way that um, the way that some other epics do, because look at the Argonautica, uh, right? Everybody says the same thing about Jason and the Argonauts. Maybe they're not going back to Apollonius's Argonauts. Jason, that J Jason is such a diluted figure in in there too. He doesn't really provide that uh, kind of focus that an Odysseus or uh, an Achilles or a Hector does, or even an Ajax or a Dolon. But nevertheless. People, people can get over that. You can make a TV miniseries. You can make a movie. You, can make, you know, the Ray Harryhausen special effects version of Jason and the Argonauts that you can, you can find that on YouTube, right? It's up, it's up there. For some reason, you can, you can get past it. You can recreate that, that myth. The myth of, a, it's not, it's just, I, I think it, maybe it's just that it's, 
it's a it's not one of these standard heroic myths. He's not a Hercules. He's not a Jason. He's not. He's like the Roman founding hero, and he doesn't have any any particular adventures that are distinct from those guys' adventures. There's something else going on in the poem. I'm I'm wondering though. Yes, he's he's he doesn't immediately cut a figure like Achilles, but. That's not to say people wouldn't be, I mean, and, and sometimes I wonder, is it maybe because no one wants to quote unquote start a story with sort of a, a loser of a, such an epic war because he does flee Troy, but the, the American public has been enamored with people sort of in this idea of a dying civilization. I mean, why do we like Gone with the Wind? I mean, the South Falls, Scarlett O'Hara does not she loses everything in the first half of the entire movie. So, um, Aeneas could be the Scarlett O'Hara of, um, I don't know, does that make Dido the Rhett Butler? Does it make, does it make Lavinia the Rhett Butler? Or maybe it makes Turnus the Rhett Butler. I don't know. But, but I, I don't, I don't think the problem is he starts out as a loser, like he's a refugee, he, isn't able initially to find a place to, to live. And that's what the poem is about, this settlement. Mm-hmm. Um, because he, he ends up winning this battle and that's where the poem ends. And he is gonna settle there and Rome is going to rise. And you've got all kinds of foreshadowings of that mm-hmm. throughout. So you, the, a filmmaker could do something with it. Right. I mean, he doesn't he could start out as a Scarlet O'Hara, but that doesn't mean that he has to stay that way. I mean, the poem itself essentially turns him into your more Achilles like hero at the end. I mean, the the duel and the beating Turnus, being able to establish Rome. Um, you know, I, I would think it would be quite exciting to be able to take someone from a losing situation. Yes, you're a refugee, you have to bounce around uh, for a little while. But I mean, I think that there's such rich source material to have, you know, whether it's a, a movie or a, some kind of mini TV series where you do, you have the Dido romance. I feel like that would that would attract a lot of people. I don't know. People like timeless romances, sort of, even if they are doomed to end well, tragically. But... I mean, as far as uh, the Indian has attracted um what do, you, what do you call it remediatizations what do you call it when you when you recreate the story of of a work in a in a different medium or maybe in the same medium i don't know i mean i gonna write another hexameter epic on this but I, I think i would just call it as an adaptation i would imagine okay, an adaptation it i mean it has it has received that in um in opera right personal or and then the there's some others and probably some plays right I, th- yeah, I think okay. so. In there the, might have been one. Tradition, the English tradition, um, what's his name? Marlowe, Marlowe's Dido. There was a, I remember um, when I taught at Cornell, a student of mine who, is, who now is a professor of classics at Duke, Lauren Donovan Ginsburg. I remember her saying that this singer Dido, there's a name, there's a, there was a singer. She was a pop singer, right? This was like 20 years ago. Her name was Dido. And I remember Lauren, or now Professor Ginsburg, saying, and if you listen to that album and you go through it, it's like she is, she's doing like a, an album version, a pop music album version of the, you know, you could sort of, you can map those, those themes onto, um, 
um, to the story of Dido and Aeneas. Now, I don't know if this singer deliberately did that, but according to Lauren, you could you could do it. I don't know if she's done anything with that. You could have you could have her on the podcast and follow up. Yeah, and ask her. I I know there are several famous paintings that have been done about oh, sure, Aeneas but, and Dido, yeah. but. Um... That's obviously not the quite the same thing as a. Well, a I mean, you can find anything in painting. The history right. of European painting since the since the 14th century, particularly, but maybe especially since the Baroque period. Yeah. Yeah, I I, I don't know. I I would love to just see whether it's some sort of film adaptation, but even just in in more popular culture. I mean, we have like the little Playmobil gods and goddesses and heroes sets. I'm like, I'd love to see a little Dido and a little Aeneas and Playmobil. So that way, you you know their story and it's it's you can just have them sort of sitting on your on your bookshelf. Yeah, you can have a Turnus on your bookshelf. Faithful Achates. Who else could you put up there? Evander. Little Evander. Uh, yeah, figure. little Vander. Um like them all. Right. I mean you could have just your your Aeneid set, right? Uh you could have you could you could have a little Carthage, build sure. a little Carthage. Mezentius. I want the I want the Mezentius. <laughs> oh, I know several people who would want that as well. Cacus. Yeah, your, your little Cacus and your little Hercules and make them make them fight each other and get a well, honestly, if you have a little Aeneas, you could pair it with your little Playmobil figures of of Achilles and uh, Menelaus and and some of the the Trojan heroes, right? And then you could have right. them kind of set up, right? Make your own, make your own epic. You know, you could do. You should get a. You could get the. Um, you could get the Diomedes figure, and the Aeneas figure rematch. Yes, get them back I, together. This is your. This is like your fan fiction. You know, you know that the son of Mark Antony, Ulysses Antonius, wrote a twelve-book epic on Diomedes. We don't, we don't have the thing. We don't even have fragments, but we have a notice that he did. And I think there's some indications in the mythological literature of how he might have, um, you know, some. He, he might have been the source for some of the material we're getting from that period on Diomedes, but. It would have been interesting to see how he, in response to Virgil and in response to Augustus, how this son of Mark Antony might have uh, might have sketched out the the adventures of this antagonist of of Aeneas. Oh, there's so many great things that I would have would love to see that people have time to to create and do. Um, I would have loved, obviously, for more historical evidence that we could really uh, have a have a window into what these ancient people were thinking. And so, okay, we've now established that the Aeneid needs to be taken and people need to do more with it because that would be really fun for a lot of Latinists out there, Um, but also just for classicists in general. Um, But Turning a little to your other sort of area of expertise, I saw that you have done some work with the cult of Adonis, which sounds the, really, the really fun. Myth. Yeah, well, that's that's an interesting phenomenon because, well, first of all, dying gods or lamented gods, you know, these these figure divine or semi-divine figures or simply, you know, they're connected to the divine by being the lover of a goddess or something, right? Um, there's just a, a lot of different ones that are similar and they cross, they cross cultures and there's a lot of different evidence. And it's often very syncretistic and cross-cultural. So it's just interesting dealing with that. And, I, and when I first started working on it, I, I, I realized that there was a tendency in the scholarship 
to try to flatten all the evidence on, on Adonis into a single cult or a single myth that all the evidence was like reflecting in different ways. I don't think so. I think these are different, that they're more different than that. They, they go under his name and there are some common features, but we should, we should respect the different cultures and periods that they're coming out of. Well, and unlike Aeneas, Adonis is, it shows up quite often in our popular culture. We, we, it's, a, it's, a, it's a modern saying, oh, he's such an Adonis. You know, he, he pops up now. For, paradigm yeah. for someone so good looking that the goddess of love even would be in a relationship with him. Well, I don't know. Yeah, that, but that's how we use Adonis. We don't use Adonis as like poor guy who got killed in a or except except for Shakespeare's Venus and Adonis, right? Shakespeare wrote. Mm-hmm. And and so how do you feel though with with that part of sort of your research where you see him popped up in our culture, in our in our expressions? People have not been uh, afraid to sort of mention or portray him uh, in in film and TV. So is it is it really is he portrayed in film and TV? Uh, he is. I can't name all of them. I, the, the one that, that unfortunately pops up in my head right away is uh, Disney animated Hercules. Uh, it, it's really fast. He's only in there for like I all of that two a few seconds. Ago, yeah, he must be like a bit player or something. Yeah, it, it's, it's short. I mean, about, it's like three the seconds. The thing about long. Adonis is interesting. One of the things that's interesting is that he is not a subject. You know, he's not a narrator. He is not someone who tells his own story. And that's something that, that's always, always interests me in his story as it's told in the different ancient versions. And if, you, if we're talking about the modern reception, in certain modern reflections of this, either telling adaptations, you say, of, of his myth or similar, similar myths, especially in, well, there's Shakespeare and in the 19th century. But in Shakespeare, Shakespeare does give him a voice, a very vigorous voice. Shakespeare, this is all about a dialogue. This is all about like a contestation between the two, the two characters. Um, most of the time though, he, he's not, he just recedes. He's an object and that makes him kind of interesting. He is the, he is the object, he's turned away from us. He is, um, he's turned away from, even from Venus or Aphrodite because he is, he is dead. In the, the poem that I uh, that was a big part of my dissertation in my first book, Bion of Smyrna's poem on Adonis, the, the epitaph on Adonis is about his death. You know, he's either dead or asleep. There's nothing, there's nothing in there about his life or his activity, their life together, or barely. Maybe you can kind of glimpse it if you read between the lines. But I I know in in ancient literature of all the little fragmentary pieces of testimony, let alone the big longer narratives of his myth. I only know of two places where it's Adonis who is speaking. Wow. So he doesn't control his story. He doesn't control his narrative. In the narratives that we have, it might be Venus or Aphrodite who is doing that and some, some other character. And would you like to see that change? Would you like to see maybe people be able to take on his story and expand it and give him a, a voice? If it works for the narrative. I don't know if I'm particularly interested in hearing what he has to say, but maybe. Well, um, I mean. The, the two that we have, there's one, there's one that's, that's doubtful. I'd probably, you know, you can imagine that it's, this is probably Adonis speaking. It's a tragedy by 
the tyrant Dionysius of Syracuse. And we have a fragment and it's from, it's from a tragedy in, that, that was performed in Athens at, at the festival. It's, it's titled Adonis. And the fragment is a character saying something like, I'm going to go out and hunt a boar and I'm going to bring back the trophies and hang them up on the door, whatever. Okay, so from, from the, the myth that later became current that uh, he did die in a boar hunt, it was not the only myth of his death, but it's, a, it's one that became widespread. But that's probably Adonis. The other one is by the poet Praxilla, who's in the century before, mid, um, <clears throat> mid fifth century. And Praxilla, lyric poet, has him say, and this is the way, the way her lines are quoted. This is Adonis speaking. He, Adonis is dead. He's in the underworld. He's asked, what is, um, what is it that you most miss about the upper world? Right. And I'm going to get the exact quotation now. Um, he says, the most beautiful thing I leave behind is the light of the sun. Secondly, the bright stars and the face of the moon and ripe cucumbers and apples and pears. So organic produce is the third thing that he misses. He misses most about the upper world. So he is controlling his narrative after the fact. That's kind of, that's kind of interesting. I don't know if there's any more of that. I don't know if, if, even if he was a, his story was a major part of that poem, because again, we only have that, that excerpt that's quoted. Yeah, I well, and and sometimes I just like to ask about, you know, if, if I happen to be lucky and, and talk to someone who studies someone who isn't one of the more popular figures, uh, because I do realize there are so many figures, both uh, historical and mythological, that not all of them really need to be made into a, a whole film. They don't need a TV series. They don't need an action figure. But uh, some of them, I, it's, it's interesting to hear, you know, do you think that at least, you know, does this person deserve more because are they actually more consequential than we realize or ha have they just fallen into becoming a trope of popular culture where that's all that most people will know about them, which is the popular expression. And so then they uh, don't really know anything about the the character or the person that that um, that came. Well, from. There's not much to know about this character or person. Right. I mean, it would all depend on how uh, how how the handling went. Right. It would all depend on what what the screenwriter or the actor or the director or whoever it is decided to do with this figure. This Adonis is a figure who is loved and lamented. You know, that those are powerful themes. Do something with them. Yeah, I, I admit I, I don't, for a good reason, I don't know much about Adonis other than I first was aware just because of the popular expression that it was meant to convey that someone was really super good looking and uh, very desirable. Well, in Greek, in Greek, the sources like Bayan called Kalos Adonis, right? Beautiful Adonis, Kalos, good looking. Mm -hmm. And in Latin, sometimes Formosus or um, synonyms for that. Yeah, I mean, it, they the, the way we reduce them to sort of just their epithets, and that's sort of what they are. Uh, it, it's interesting. <laughs> um, so kind of going from okay so now we've had this great discussion about you know where we see these things pop up in our popular culture we obviously talk about them whether it's looking at the exact source material or if we interact with them in some way shape or form in terms of i i and i hate what's going on now but in this current age where 
and there's there's not really an emphasis on the importance of of the humanities anymore. I feel like people are just getting further and further away from that, uh, which often results in just sort of the defunding of programs. And eh, it's not important. It's just some old stuff. Go learn it on your old your your own time. There are obviously a lot of lessons we can take looking at the ancient source material, just learning a lot about the past uh, and. Uh, and, and applying it to modern life, modern culture. Do you think that there is a way where we can effectively sort of do what we did here today, which is look at this stuff and say, oh, we talk about this all the time. We can apply this to, to sort of critically look at our, our culture, our civilization, how we frame things. Is there an argument to be made? We need to reinvest time resources uh and just make a concerted effort to essentially do more of of, on a large scale of of what we're doing here which is just talking about how much it affects us yes you won't won't get a note from me there if if we're talking specifically about ancient greece or rome ancient ancient greek and roman culture then yes there's a lot of value in studying a long ago civilization that is uh very different from what we're used to in our society, and yet, um, and yet that has left a lot of evidence and even provided lots of lots of models. And to study the that those cultures in their connections with other cultures of the time and their culture, their connections with our own culture, to study to study it in a in a way that both estranges it and finds those assimilations, find the, finds those, um, those similarities between us and them. You wanna keep them at arm's length, but at the same time, uh, recognize the, the relevance of what they're saying. Mm-hmm. And I believe you're also, you serve as director of undergraduate studies? I, I am, yeah. So when young potential freshmen come to you and just say, hey, I love poetry, I love, ancient Rome. I love, I saw that one Disney movie and I loved this certain mythological character, but um, yeah, I don't know what to do with that uh, because I, I'd like to become an investment banker. You know, what does that conversation look like? That's the thing. That is, I I, I wouldn't get that at Brown. They know Mm -hmm. that they can become an investment banker with a classics degree. And that's, you know, this is, this is kind of a, a dirty class secret in some ways that there are certain universities you can go to where everybody knows or learns that whatever you major in, maybe it's different now than it was when I was in college. I don't think so though. I mean, there are, there are Brown classics graduates in recent years who have gone on to become investment bankers. And you know they might have they might have done a dual major in econ or something, but they didn't have to. They knew they didn't have to. And again, that's they just and, so they nice. could go on and do something else. Just as they could go on to they can go on to med school. Of course, if you go on to med school, you have to take a certain number of courses in the sciences, or you're not going to get anywhere. You're not going to get into med school, but you can do that. And um, so it it just doesn't come up as much. There are places where it does come up where nobody knows that. When I was teaching at Ohio State, for example, the students didn't know that. You know, if you suggested to them majoring in classics, most, a lot of them, probably most, 
would say, well, I want to get a job afterwards and I don't want to be a Latin teacher or a Greek teacher. And they would take some persuading to, um, to make them see that uh, that's not necessarily what would happen. But, uh, but they didn't know people who had done that. They didn't know people who had majored in classics, majored in Greek or Latin or both, and, uh, and then gone on to Wall Street or med school or law school or business school or, or some totally different, different thing. Become, become an actor, you know, become a, um, what a, you know, a writer. And I think that that's, it, it must be so nice because I, I have talked to several uh, professors who are director of undergraduate studies or chairs of their department. And they often uh, talk about the, the struggles they have sort of convincing students and convincing students' parents that this is actually a good thing, that it's worth it. And uh, you know, no need to be miserable throughout uh, your undergrad career trying to do something that you think will, will immediately pay off in terms of a, a high paying job the moment you graduate. So uh, it, it must be nice to, to be in a different situation, to be able to have a different sort of conversation, not come, please do this, but more of a, okay, you're going to do this. So how can we help you also then combine it with what, with what you think you might want to go in? I, I'm imagining that conversation is a, a lot more fun. Well, the, the persuading doesn't come up as much. I would, I, th- that, that would be a great uh, ideal eventual situation where, where nobody who's a director of undergraduate studies has to persuade people that uh, it's a valid field of study for, for one. For well, I mean, we're, for not, one we're not like fighting them off or anything. We're, wel- <laughs> we're welcoming them and we do, we, do, uh, we do have answers to their questions. And Honestly, in a, in a perfect world, though, wouldn't you want people to come? Because, you know, to me, I think that'd be kind of fun, though, to have so many people interested that you do have to kind of say, well, wait, 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 no, 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 wait, wait, okay. We've got room for everybody in the program. Good, good. Um, it's a bit easier at Brown to concentrate in more than one thing. Yeah, uh, that's the dream. I, I, Sometimes I look back and I wish I would have um, gone through with, with the transfer just to see what would have happened, but... Um, Oh, well. So at the end of uh, every podcast episode, I have each guest read Percy Shelley's Ozymandias. Um, And then afterwards, if you could just give me your thoughts on, you know, what do you make of the poem? Does it speak to you in a a special way? Uh, What is what feelings does it evoke? Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. You know, there's a, there's a Monty Python sketch that involved this poem. I don't know if you know that. You look it up on, see if it's on YouTube. I vaguely remember it, I think. Wow. Everything, the word ants kept getting interpolated into, into the dialogue. So I ended up, my name is Ozymandias, king of ants. I'm sure you'd find it online somewhere. I, I know that I'm, I'm familiar with, with a lot of a lot of films, TV shows, popular culture things, whether or not they interact with a full poem, they do seem to take the name or the word Ozymandias uh, and and, um, and use it. It's really interesting. I think there were a couple TV shows where they have Ozymandias in the episode name. Um, for some reason, I, I, I don't watch enough of it to know, unfortunately. I don't know. Is this the kind, as someone who is kind of an expert in poetry, is this the kind of poem that you do you think it's like the like an Aeneid where, where people might be wanting to read this 2000 years from now? Is it timeless? I don't know. After wait 2000 years, it's it's very much of its time. But that's not to say that it it's not something that that we can read and read something into. I mean, if I were to read it in its time, I'd say this is a very high romantic poem, a very early 19th century poem, um, a very post-French Revolution poem in, in its reception of antiquity, of its, its reception of earlier civilizations, and particularly an earlier, a monarchical, autocratic, despotic earlier civilization, which, it's, which is how it's characterizing this obviously Near Eastern ruler, right, in the desert. And you think of Egypt, maybe you think of Mesopotamia, somewhere in West Asia, Arabia, but I think I think people think first of first of Egypt. Um, that's that's what it's um, it's it's most assimilable to. I mean, the the whole idea of the past as done, finished. You know, the the whole poem is well, maybe maybe there's something else going on. Maybe there's a the threat that this that this despotism and this. The, the autocratic power of Ozymandias is still there somewhere. I don't, I'm not sure of that though. I think that the, the poem, everything in the poem is conspiring to make it seem like he's dead, he's over and done. Look, he, he, when he was alive, he claimed 
his power, but now, now it's completely gone. It ends with the decay of this, this Colossus as a wreck. And it not, it, it, you know, it's overdetermined. It's not just that th this monument is, um, is a wreck and decayed, but it's surrounded by a desert, a land that is boundless and bare stretching far away in every direction, lone and level sands, nothing is growing, right? Nothing is growing. So the, the passions yet survive. The, the, something, something alive has left its stamp. Maybe it's telling us how to read this poem after Shelley is dead, that, oh, something is still to be read. Maybe it's telling us how to read poetry. But it's also, it's also telling us that everything that went into the making of this monument and what it, and everything that the monument represents is now contained within this this wreck that is on lifeless sands, and this is a this is a land you know this is in the, the period when Britain was first gaining an empire in or let's say let's say imperial power in Asia, West Asia in in Egypt. This was all yet this is all in the future and future decades of the nineteenth century. There's a sense here that that region is boundless and bare. It's boundless and, you know, if you, if you, if you, if you read this in a, in a sort of pre-imperial way or proto-imperial, I don't know, early, let's say early imperial way, um, boundless and bare means there for the taking. means that, you know, there's, it's, it's easy to fill up and whatever has been there is gone. It's dead, it's decayed, it's a wreck. So that's the way that's the way I read it. It's a particular particular view on the past that emphasizes the over and doneness of that past, the containedness maybe of whatever had been alive in that past, the subjectivities and the power relations that obtained then, and its availability now to the present. So uh, yeah, again, a very Shellyan poem, a very high romantic poem that, um, and a very post-French Revolution poem that sort of draws a, a sharp break between the old regime and what is now, what is now possible, and has has some kind of English imperial undertones. Yeah, I when I uh, when I I suppose read or hear the poem. Um, to me, it definitely speaks of the hubris of man. It's it's very much a, a memento mori kind of um, just the it speaks to the ephemeral nature of of political power as well. Um, those are things that themes that speak to me. And so when when I uh, think about it, there's ten thousand things that obviously can pop up. And for everyone else who reads it, it's it's very different. So I'm just wondering now. If I were to ask you, you know, are there any sort of modern day Ozymandiases that you can think of? You know, what if I said, you know, what is the modern day Ozymandias? Rulers who claim to be king of kings look on my works, he mighty in despair. Well, not exactly. I mean, if they're just despots and autocrats, of course, you can look around. And in, in recent, you know, in the past decade, there's been a, a, they've been a growing problem, let's say. Um, uh, the challenge is to the more democratic and more broadly based forms of rule and governance. But uh, 
I don't know. Is there anybody right now who says, look how my work seems be mighty and despair that that challenge calls himself somebody calls himself king of kings i don't know i i guess i'm i don't know enough about contemporary geopolitics to be able to identify these these particular discursive elements i mean i think we tend to think a lot of uh modern politics and people but the example that that someone brought up which i use all the time because i i think it's a an amazing example uh, a sort of modern day ozymandias really is a like an abandoned casino in atlantic city right i mean we thought that they were gonna be the next bit best thing and that's just they were going to be in business forever and sort of monopolize the world and and now they're 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 gone they're abandoned um, yeah the trump taj mahal whatever whatever the name was is it still that's 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 over and down isn't it yeah, uh, there's a, a lot of uh, things that are <laughs> uh, in that vein that are done. Yeah, that's the Taj Mahal is gone. Um, there are a couple other ones that went out of business, but I don't remember where. Um, Sheldon Adelson died yesterday or the day before, didn't he? But I, I believe his casinos still live on after him. So not, maybe not. Uh, right. So so maybe not his casinos, but but. The, I mean, I suppose if they ever did, I mean, do I do I think that his casino chain is going to be standing in 2000 years? Maybe. Probably not. I don't think so. So maybe in 2000 years, you look at a, his one of his old abandoned uh, casinos or luxury resorts and you say, ah, that's definitely an Ozymandias there. So maybe, maybe the answer is far in the future. So we're, we have to wait for it. Yeah, right. Maybe maybe instead of thinking of um, actual kings or rulers, that we should be thinking of um, um, multi-billionaires and so on. These uh, these oligarchs who have gained immense fortunes just in the last last decade or even the last ten months. Yeah. Well, there's there's several we can probably yeah. think of yeah. that come to mind. Yeah. You know, they come and go. Right. I mean, this is. Part of this poem is just the truism that this Ecclesiastes claim that uh, all is vanity. I think there's real truth to that, um, for sure, for sure. Um, but I wanted to thank you uh, once again for joining me today. Uh, it was such an enlightening discussion. Trireme Transit is now departing Ancient Odyssey. Next stop is Present Ponderings. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things. The hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. 
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 